Our text for today is from John chapter 20. This account of the risen Christ is his encounter with the so-called doubting Thomas. And these words of Jesus to Thomas here in verse 29 where he says, Thomas, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And then the Apostle John writes this. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. And so I ask you, do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? Do you believe the things that have been written about him in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Many of you here today do believe Perhaps there are some of you here today who do not believe. We're glad you're here. Perhaps there are some of you here today who are like me, especially when I was a younger man, where maybe you have some doubts or you have some questions, maybe big doubts or maybe just little doubts at various times. The ultimate question that is before us today is how can we believe? How can we know these things for sure? How can we be certain about the things that have been written about Jesus Christ? Ultimately, of course, it is the power of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit alone. But how can we, maybe practically speaking, grow in our certainty of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, to begin with, and really quickly, it might depend on what you actually mean by the word certainty. What does the word certainty even mean? There's different types of certainty. There's what we call an emotive certainty. That's a certainty that's just deep within you. It's like a gut thing. It's like, I just know this to be true. And there's mathematical certainty. You've got two apples. Someone gives you two more apples. You got four apples. Just absolute, undeniable certainty, mathematical certainty. There's another type of certainty that we use in courts of law, in the judicial system. It's called moral certainty. And it's a certainty where we ask the question, what is reasonable? Is it reasonable to doubt? Not is it possible to doubt. I mean, you can doubt anything. I mean, people doubt whether or not men landed on the moon. People still doubt that. You can doubt whether or not George Washington was our first president. You can doubt whether or not John F. Kennedy was actually killed in Dallas, Texas in 1963. You can doubt anything. Is it reasonable? That's the question. And really the question for us today, is it reasonable to believe 
Is it reasonable to believe? Can you be a reasonable person and believe the things that have been written about Jesus Christ in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? There's four things I want us to see here this morning under this question. Is it reasonable to believe in the gospel and in the gospels? Four things, first of all, that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John have a very reliable origin where they came from. Secondly, that they have a very realistic style. Thirdly, that at times there's kind of some embarrassing or problematic content. I'll talk about what that means. And finally, that in the Gospels we see the vital, the real answers to these ultimate questions. Reliable origin, realistic style, embarrassing content, vital answers. Let's jump right in that the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, have a reliable origin. First of all, a reliable origin, just as we compare and contrast with other ancient texts, histories, and biographies from the ancient world. If you are here on Christmas Eve, you might remember I talked about Alexander the Great. And I said that Alexander the Great, the earliest biographies that we have of the life of Alexander the Great were written over 300 years after his death in 323 B.C. And historians today believe them to be fairly reliable sources for the life and the history of Alexander the Great, and they were written over 300 years after he died. The Gospels... Take Matthew, Mark, and Luke, for example. They were written only 25 to 30 years after the life, the earthly life of Jesus. Only 25 to 30 years. During the lifetime of the people who were there, who were the eyewitnesses of these events. Very reliable origin. Reliable origin also if we compare the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, to say other religious texts like the Quran or the Book of Mormon. How was the Quran and the Book of Mormon actually created? How was it actually developed? The Quran was one man, Muhammad, who goes off into the wilderness and he says the angel Gabriel gives him a revelation and he writes it all down and he comes back and he goes, here it is, here's the word of God, believe it, one guy. The Book of Mormon, Joseph Smith goes off into the woods, finds some gold plates. He says he was led there by an angel, gave some special glasses so he can translate it. He writes it all down, and he goes, here it is. It's a whole other testament of Jesus Christ we never knew about before. Just one guy. Now compare that to how Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were comprised. Even before they were written down, the story of the events of the birth and the life and the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ. It wasn't just one person. These were real events that were witnessed and experienced by a whole community of people. You see how different that is? In fact, I love these words we just heard from St. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where he says that Jesus appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom were still living at the time that Paul was writing. And Paul is writing just 20 years after the resurrection of Christ, well within the lifespan of the people who were there, who eyewitnessed, witnesses who could verify whether this was true or not. Doesn't even mention women and children, maybe, who were present. 500 
people, in case you're wondering what 500 people look like, there it is. And some of you might say, well, Paul has an agenda. He's a religious leader, a Christian leader. Maybe he was just making this up when he wrote down that over 500 people, all that boy, that sounds really good, over 500 people at the same time, most of whom were still living at the very time that Paul was writing. Now, if Paul is lying, if he's just making that up, Paul, I gotta be honest, is one of the worst liars around. Why? Because a lie like that could easily, so easily, be verified whether it's true or not. Okay, Paul, you say over 500, most of them are still alive. Let's go meet 10 of them. Show me five of them. Um, or, uh, why would Paul write an outrageous claim like this that over 500 saw the living, resurrected Jesus Christ. Maybe, just maybe, I submit to you that the most reasonable explanation is that it's actually true. That's 500 people. About a million people. But why are you showing us a picture of a million people? Well, historians look at the first century period around the city of Jerusalem during the time of the Passover. And they believe, they estimate that upwards to a million, maybe even more than a million people, the population of Jerusalem would swell to a million people during the time of the Passover. What happened during the time of the Passover? That's when Jesus was nailed to a cross. When Jesus was nailed to the cross during his crucifixion, all the gospels tell us that the sun stopped shining. Maybe supernaturally, maybe it was just a Solar eclipse, I don't know. But the sun stopped shining for three hours. Do you think a few of those people maybe noticed? It says that when Jesus died on the cross, there were earthquakes and graves opened up and that the temple in the curtain, the, temple, the curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Do you think anyone noticed? These things were not done in secret. These things were known. Something weird, supernatural happened the day that Jesus of Nazareth was crucified. And there were thousands upon thousands of people, you see, who became followers of Jesus. 50 days later, Pentecost, on the day of Pentecost, 50 days later, many of these same people were back in Jerusalem. And it says, how many people became followers of Christ on that day? 3,000. It's a staggering number, hard to believe. Power of the Holy Spirit. But also, 3,000 people, because so many thousands upon thousands knew that amazing things had just taken place 50 days earlier at the death of Jesus Christ, and the tomb was empty. I love what Peter says, 2 Peter chapter 1. Peter says, we did not follow cleverly devised myths, stories, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We weren't making it up. We didn't follow cleverly devised stories and myths. We were there. We saw and we heard and we touched with our hands. And history records for us that the Apostle Peter was crucified upside down outside of the walls of Rome under the emperor 
Nero. And Nero was a despicable man. And here's the point. All Peter had to do before this happened to him, all he had to do before he was brutally executed, murdered, was to say what? We made it up. We got together, what were we thinking? We got together, we made up all these fanciful stories about Jesus, and then for, you know, we, for some reason, we, we left our families, we left our livelihoods, we started traveling around the world telling this, this fake religion and this lie that we came up. We made it up, we made it up. Don't do it. But Peter didn't say that. He gave his life. All the apostles gave their life, including thousands and thousands of Christians who followed them, all who were martyred, who were executed because of their faith in Jesus Christ. You say, yeah, pastor, I know, but there's lots of crazy people out there who'll die for a strange coat, literally drink the Kool-Aid. I mean, we know that people are willing to do that. Yes, people are willing to die for what they are convinced is true. Peter and the apostles and the thousands of Christians who followed them, whatever happened to them, we have to say we know they were utterly convinced that Jesus of Nazareth was the Son of God who came into this world to die for them and to rise to give them hope. Now, does all of this absolutely prove everything that's in the Bible and the Gospels? Of course not. Can you doubt it? Of course you can. But I would suggest you are very reasonable, and it is so reasonable. The most reasonable explanation is what has been written. So that's a reliable origin, but secondly, and real quickly here, uh, realistic style. Just show you one example of this. This is from John chapter 21. This is after Jesus has risen. He appears to his disciples. They're fishing in a boat. And people, I, I highlight this because people say, well, the gospel's developed over hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, and it's like a, a story, it's like a legend that developed a mythology, but listen to how it's written. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord there on the shore, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about, about a hundred yards off. See the details. This isn't how legends are written. It goes on, verse 9, when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. 153, not 152 fish, not 154 fish. There were 153 large fish. John, who's writing this, remember, was a fisherman. He knew how many fish they had caught that day. You know, realistic fiction, realistic fiction really wasn't developed until the 19th century. Why is this so real? Such detail. It's not a legend that developed over hundreds and hundreds of years. They're writing down what happened. They were there. 
it's reasonable to believe. Secondly, that there is at times in the Gospels embarrassing content. By that I mean content that was problematic, a problem for the early church. Things that are written there. Let me give you just two examples of it. The first one, you know, I've shared some of this stuff with you before in the past. The first thing that really was a problem for the early church was that women were recorded to be the first and the primary and the central eyewitnesses of the empty tomb and of the resurrected living Jesus Christ. You remember the story. The women were the first ones there on Easter morning. Where were the men? They had run away and hid. Good for you, ladies. Why is this a problem? That women were the eyewitnesses, the first eyewitnesses of the resurrection. Well, you probably know the opinion of women and the testimony of women, even in court in the first century, was not allowed. I actually have a quote from the Jewish historian Josephus. He's writing about the year 93 or so AD. He says, let not the testimony of women be admitted on account of the levity and boldness of their sex nor let servants be admitted to give testimony on account of the ignobility of their soul. What's Josephus saying? He is saying that servants and slaves weren't allowed to testify in court because they're liars. And women aren't allowed to testify in court because they're so emotional. I'm not saying that. (laughs) Josephus is saying that. First century patriarchal society is saying that but it's how it was. And it was used as a way of attacking the central truth of Christianity is that Jesus had died and risen, the tomb was empty, and that he was alive. It was a way of attacking and trying to tear down and destroy Christianity. Again, I've shared this with you on a few occasions. There was a Greek philosopher named Celsus, 170 AD, and he says this, after death, Jesus rose again and showed the marks of his punishment, how his hands had been pierced, But who saw this? He leaves out Thomas and the boys. He says, a hysterical female. Kelsus said that, not me. A hysterical female and perhaps some other of those who were deluded by the same sorcery. Who saw the resurrected Christ? It was a female. And we know how they are, hysterical. Again, What's the point? If you're getting together and you're creating false stories, fictional accounts, a fake religion, why in the world are you writing down that the women were the ones who were there, the brave ones and the bold ones, the first ones to see Jesus alive again and the tomb that was empty, knowing that that was going to be a problem, knowing you're going to have to spend year after year after year trying to defend that and explain that a problem. Why in the world would you write that women were the first eyewitnesses, perhaps? It's because they were simply writing down what actually happened. Can you doubt? Of course. But you're reasonable to believe these things are true. You know, one other embarrassing content or problem is the 
is the way that the disciples are described. How do they come across in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and the Gospels? Have you read the Gospels? They're the biggest boneheads in the Bible. Ooh, that's a class, Cassie. Boneheads of the Bible. They're arguing amongst us. I'm the greatest. No, I'm going to be the greatest. I mean, they're like a bunch of babies. And you have the two pillars, the two great leaders of the Christian church. You have the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul. And how are they described in Scripture? The Apostle Peter always puts his foot in his mouth. He speaks before he thinks. And the Apostle Peter, you know the story, he denies Jesus not once, not twice, but three times. He even calls down a curse on himself. And he says, I would rather go to hell May I go to hell if I know this man, Jesus of Nazareth? And he goes out and he weeps bitterly. And Peter, and they're, they're just making these stories up. Is this the way you're going to describe yourself? And then the apostle Paul, and then the other great leader of the church, and he is a persecutor, a murderer of men and women, taking mothers and fathers away from their screaming children. And that's all made up. Why in the world would you describe the leaders, the founding leaders of the church in that way unless, again, perhaps you're writing down what was true? Finally, vital answers. Real Answers again to the deepest, the ultimate questions. It's what we've been exploring through this season of Epiphany. Our life, don't you feel like your life, sometimes you're like a book with half the pages ripped out, half the pages are missing. Go up into the attic and you discover the other half of the book and you put it together and finally, all of a sudden, life begins to make sense. You know who you are. You know why you're here. You know where you're going. You know where you came from. And this is just a fact of history, that it was just a little over 200 years, this little group, this marginalized group of brutalized and oppressed people, how many Christians, maybe, maybe 70 of them oppressed under the regime of Rome, off to the corners of society, peasants and slaves, many of them. They were the nothings. And a little over 200 years, Christianity grew and grew and grew and spread and spread throughout the Roman Empire, and it became, in just 200 years, the dominant worldview, philosophy, religion force within all of Rome, the most powerful empire in the world. And how did that happen? It wasn't through military conquest or the sword. You know, the prophet Muhammad was a warrior. How did it happen? It was ordinary people knowing and sharing this extraordinary life they had in Jesus. These vital answers to the deepest questions. Your past is redeemed and your future is secured and the living Jesus could come and make a difference in your life today. And it was one person telling another person and it was one family sharing it with another family and it was through people seeing that Christians had this confidence and this hope that the ancient world simply did not have and it literally just grew by person, by person, by person. And here we are today. Is it reasonable to believe these things? Yes. Now as we conclude here, if it's reasonable to believe, why do so many people not believe 
And why maybe if you're like me at times, do you struggle to believe? Well, look, there were people during the time of the life and the ministry of Christ who didn't believe, right? There were literally people who saw Lazarus dead and then saw Lazarus alive again and still they didn't believe. You see, it's not just an intellectual problem. It's not just that we don't have enough data. It's not just a problem with our head, right? There's a problem fundamentally with our hearts. And if you're here today or watching online and you struggle to believe or you don't believe, please have the honesty to admit that it's not just an intellectual problem, but it is a problem deep within our hearts. How do we overcome it? How do we, even with our little doubts or struggles that we might have? Well, it's what John says here. These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. These things are written. How can we overcome that belief? How can we get to know Jesus? If Jesus seems like an abstraction or a concept, how can Jesus become more and more real to you? We listen to the apostles. We listen to those who were there, who are eyewitnesses. These things are written so that you may believe, and you may have that extraordinary life even now. You look and you see who Jesus is. I mean, just, I mean, all of the Bible is important, but to really slow down with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, look at what it says here about Thomas. Remember Thomas on that first day? Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger to the mark of the nails and place my hand to his side, I will never believe. We call him Doubting Thomas. And eight days later, Jesus appears to them. He goes, okay, Thomas, put your hands here. See the nail, put your hand into the nail marks, put your hand into my side. You think, wait a second, how did Jesus know what Thomas had said? Did Jesus appear on a Wednesday and go up to the disciples? And he said, Thomas said, what? Are you kidding me? I'm gonna let that guy have it. No, Jesus knew because Jesus was there all along the whole time when Thomas, I will never believe, and Jesus was there. And look how gentle, look how patient, look how kind, Thomas, here I am. Stop doubting and believe. When we slow down with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we see the power of Christ. We see demons running in terror. We see people in fear of him. He speaks as one who has authority. And we also see Jesus, not just his holiness and his power, but we see him holding babies in his arms and stretching out his arms to receive the nails on the cross. And we look and we see his wounds. And it's by his wounds that our stubborn hearts are healed. Okay, one last thing, because some of you are like, okay, that sounds great. But if the Bible is true, then then what does that mean? I mean, can I, how can I be free? I want to be free to do whatever I want to do. I want to be free to live my life. What is freedom? That is a really good question. Come back next week. Bring a friend, and as always, to Christ alone be all the glory. Amen.